The Conquest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cabby Productions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Conquest of Bliss. I am here with the author and unstoppable man, Paul Matthew Harrison. Um, <laughs> how are you today, Paul? Good. How are you? I am pretty fantastic. So I'm going to start with the hardest question in the world, and uh-huh. that is, in your mind, what does happiness mean? Well, whenever I've asked that question before, I've been told happiness is a fleeting emotion that you shouldn't want or chase because life is complex and you have to feel a whole range of emotions. So what you're looking for is something more like peace and contentment rather than just the emotion of happiness. And that happiness isn't something you chase after. It's usually the result of something else, like doing something meaningful with your life and gaining satisfaction from that. So it's it's more finding out what you value and then living out your values. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, I feel like like you said two different things there and it's very interesting um, because to me, they um, were counter to one another. So I'm interested to see how how they might not be. Um, Sure. uh, So you said at first that happiness is something more like what I would call joy, but you know, um, about the fleeting emotion and stuff. Although I'm not going to lie, me and my therapist disagree on what happiness means. And right. so, um, <laughs> but uh, so, um, you know, as, as an happiness, as an emotion, and I agree so, so much with the fact that we need the whole range of emotions in order to feel, you know, fulfillment and contentedness. Um, and then afterward, um, what I understood you to be saying was that happiness was that end result of the fulfillment and the meaningfulness. And to me, those things are counter to one another. Um, like those are the two different definitions. Um, so I'm interested. I'm interested to know because you said that people said that it's the first one. So do you just, fall more just in the a fleeting second emotion camp? you shouldn't chase? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think. Um, yeah, it's hard to answer that. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you. <laughs> In some sense, everything we do every day is to try not to suffer, mm-hmm. is to try to do something enjoyable or fun or something that animates us or something to look forward to. You know, we're looking for serotonin hits and dopamine hits and things that make us feel alive. Nobody Absolutely. wants to feel flat or in pain. So when somebody says it's a fleeting emotion, it's almost like hearing somebody say, oh, emotions are just cheap. Who cares about those? But they are, they are what give you life. You know yeah, what I mean? They're if the you've whole ever thing. Been, flat or depressed or nihilistic or anything like that or dissociated you know life without emotions is is, it's like you're already dead you know you're you're doing uh, extreme things to try to feel alive again so we're always trying to outrun discomfort and pain and negative feelings but there's an anxiety of always trying to chase happy feelings and a disappointment when they don't always come and so there's a sense in which you've got those happy feelings, but then when you have those negative ones, what's the best way to manage those to, to keep yourself optimistic? So there's a bit of a realism there that says you're not always going to be happy. So what are you going to do about that to not fall into the abyss? Absolutely. Yeah. Navigating. I find that like a huge part of my journey is 
is learning to just better navigate and relate to my more challenging and difficult emotions as opposed to try and um, get rid of them altogether. Because one of the things that you said, you know, you said we're always trying to avoid suffering. And I love that you use the word suffering and not the word pain. Because pain and mm. suffering are two very, very different things. And a lot of people think of them as the same. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you said suffering because suffering is is pain that exists beyond its value, basically. You know, like pain has value. It teaches us things. It tells us information. But then suffering yeah. is when we have pain without that that positive side, that, that usefulness. Um, and it, it just becomes... It's just endless. Well, not obviously not endless, but it's, you know, longer term prolonged pain that has, it it doesn't have that balance, that dichotomy that pain on its own has, you know, pain sucks, but it sucks specifically to teach us, (laughs) you know, to communicate with us. Um, So I just love that you said that. It can. (laughs) It can. Did I, uh, did I hear something about fibromyalgia on a previous podcast? Uh, you probably did because I have it. Um, mm. <laughs> I, have, I do too. Oh, you do? That yeah. is so interesting. I know very few men yeah. who have it. It's Yeah, I got it. Um, I was 16 years old and I got mono in high school, my sophomore year of high school. And when I didn't recover and I couldn't find energy over the next year, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And this was in... 1995 so right after i graduated high school around 18 so i had the exhaustion Mm -hmm. but not the pain and then a few years after uh, the pain started to set in and all the other symptoms that go along with that and i was diagnosed with fibromyalgia so i've been um pretty pretty well disabled with it most of my life i'm 44 now i got it at 16 so i've been living a few decades oh, wow. with yeah. this and and uh, managing it in different ways. So for me, because of the way those disabilities hampered my life early on, you know, you're an idealistic, <laughs> youthful person who believes life is good and you're going to go into life and make a big difference and you come out and you can't have a career. It's hard to drive a car, you know, yes. all the things you want to do. You want to like get married just to establish a life and make money and on and on and on. And so at various points in my life, the attempts to do that and it continually collapsing on me and having to go back to start over and over. Um, And then years, the pain is so intense, you're almost delirious. That pain becomes suffering. And and then it's a lot of just kill me. What does my life mean? Do I just lay here in this pain till I die? There's melodramatic catastrophizing. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I started to find some books. Uh, an author named Tony Bernhard has a book called How to Be Sick. And she also has fibromyalgia. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And there was a lot in there about radical acceptance and uh, and some Buddhist ideas about letting go of your past that you you might not ever get the exuberance and energy you used to have in your past. You have to give up your dreams of the future and kind of just accept now. Mm-hmm. Um, and along those lines that, you know, the Buddhist idea is that you are not your thoughts. There's a book called You Are Not Your Pain. And that book made the Love. same point you did, which is there's pain, but then we catastrophize by giving meaning to the pain. This means I'm a loser. This means I'll never get better. I'll be stuck forever. My life is meaningless, you know, 
all that adds to that you're creating the suffering in your mind. But there's a way to just have pain, minimize the suffering, and then even learn how to thrive with the pain. Yeah. And, and I mean, with me, like, um, I don't know, I don't know which episode you listened to where I talked about fibromyalgia. I've talked about it a few times, but, um, like with me, I have such a weird relationship with pain. And, and I think that fibromyalgia is actually a really good example of, of, um, suffering sometimes, right? Like, cause fibromyalgia is notorious for, um, like it's basically your, your nerves are overactive and it's pain that isn't communicating as well. Right, like it's it's not telling you to fix your hip. Like if anything, you you know the the way to get healthy physically through fibromyalgia is to do everything your body's telling you not to. Um, you know, your body's don't move, says, don't move. and you're like your doctor's like, no, you've got to move. You know, right? And and your intuition says I'm going to be more tired if I go for a run. But realistically, mm-hmm. because because of how fibromyalgia works, if you go for a run, you're actually more likely to be less tired. Feel better. Um, and, and it's, it's a, it's a super, super interesting illness. Um, when you compare it to the like mental wellness stuff, like it's a very, oh, it's very interesting. Anyways, um, there's, but, there's a, if you have chronic fatigue syndrome and for years, I just sort of put them together as the same thing. So I'd go see a doctor and say, I have fibromyalgia. And then they would recommend some sort of physical therapy that would kill me. It would leave me in bed for weeks. And finally, somebody said, did you, did you tell your doctor you have chronic fatigue syndrome as well? And I said, no. I thought it was kind of the same thing, you know. And they said, well, no, chronic fatigue syndrome, if you're active, you're going to hit a wall and be completely depleted. So the thing that helps the fibromyalgia, it flares Lessons. up the chronic fatigue syndrome. So you're, you're trapped in between these, these two. Well, and I mean, and one of the things that you talked about, too, that I definitely, definitely wrestled with myself is is, you know, the radical acceptance and, um, you know, who I thought that I was going to be, you know, grieving who I thought I was going to be and grieving who I used to be and, and, and coming to a place of meeting myself where I'm at was, is still very challenging. Like, I mean, I'm honestly, it's the strangest thing because I am doing these things, different projects and, and things that set my soul on fire and never felt possible. And yet, I still find myself thinking, I wish I could just work a fucking nine to five, you yeah. know? And yeah. and that's so wild. Like, I would rather like, you know, like go work in a factory doing something for someone else. And, and not that I would rather, but it's that voice in my head that's like, that's who you were going to be. You were going to make all this money mm-hmm. and never have to make any decisions. <laughs> and right. now it's like, I make very little money and make tons of decisions, but I'm doing something that I love, you uh-huh. know? Like, it's so weird. Oh, it's so you can weird. see it as a gift and say, I mean, my friends will say things like, you get to stay home and listen to lectures and write books and sit in coffee shops. And you know what I mean? I got to sit in traffic and go to work and deal with a crappy boss and on and on. So their views would be like, hey, look, it's not much better. Sure. You know what I mean? If you think you want to be married and have a career and have a home and on and on and on that's not much more fulfilling. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of stress. So for them, it's like, man, I wish I was in your shoes half the time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I get that a lot. all that time, use it, you know, do this podcast, write and draw and express, you know, we've well, got time to think about things and communicate things other people can't because they're too busy with practical life. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's this weird double-edged sword 
Because on the one hand, we have, you know, I think what, what everyone experiences, the grass is always greener type thing, uh-huh. where it's like, oh, if I could just have the boring stability, <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, like you're absolutely right. And it's, it's almost overwhelming because it's like something that I viewed as a curse for so long. And don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the pain is still there. It still sucks in that way. But something I viewed as an overall curse for so long has just like showed its head like this crazy blessing where it's like, like you said, like the opportunity, the time, the the chances, like most people can't you just start their own business or just, yeah. you know, start a full-time yeah. podcast, you know, mm-hmm. let alone all the other things that I somehow am able to fit into my life. And it's a huge blessing, but oh man, at the same time, I, you know, sometimes I need to grieve, <laughs> sometimes I need to grieve the, uh, the other side, the, the life not lived. For sure. But this goes back to the, uh, the first question about happiness, that if you are an idealist, like I am, we tend to feel like life will begin once this happens or this comes through. Once I get this thing and then, damn, I'll be happy like everyone else. I've had friends for years say, don't idealize. I, I, know you know married couples who are just great together they've been married 20 years and they have a beautiful marriage and i'm like man i want to have a relationship like you guys one day and they're like oh don't idealize us if you knew the stuff we've been through and just uh, whatever it is I, um you know i have friends in bands and they'll say you know it's you might see the fun stuff on stage mm-hmm. but it's not all it's cracked up to be it's a lot yeah. of driving and arguing with your bandmates and so yeah, a, if you sit from a distance and idealize the, the ideas, well, I'll be happy when I have what everyone else has. So the, the, I guess the, the sad thing is to go, huh, nobody's happy. Nobody's content. <laughs> Everybody's looking for something else other than what they are or where they are, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and it's, I think at the same time as that being true, that nobody's happy is like we all have it in us inside of us we just don't know how to uncover it um or we we slowly learn how to uncover it and i mean and you've touched a little bit and and i find it so interesting um you've touched a little bit on you know the different philosophies that you've been able to come into so would you say that your beliefs now are sort of an amalgamation of those different philosophies you've you've come into contact with over the years sure Uh uh-huh uh, before we move on to this, I wanted to hear your story about how you got fibromyalgia, how long you've had it, or oh, we okay. could talk about that off no, the no, podcast unless the audience fine. wants to hear it. Um, well, I don't know if they want to hear it, but they hear whatever I end up putting out, so well, it's okay. I want to hear it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, uh, I've i had chronic pain since I was a kid, but I didn't know because we thought that it was growing pains. And mm. so when I was 18, I said to my mom, I said, oh, I've got the worst growing pains today. And she goes, you're 18, you're not growing anymore. So, <laughs> so I went to the doctor and, and it's so funny because I weighed 130 pounds at the time. And the doctor goes, no, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just overweight. By the way, I was not overweight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't do anything about it for five or six years. I just was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just fat, you know. And uh because you know it's very easy to convince like a like an eighteen year old that they're that they're fat. Um, sure. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, and then I finally started having more and more like um, just you know like the different stuff that comes in like GI issues and this and that just all the random symptoms that seem to follow fibromyalgia that have nothing to do with 
what you Thanks. think of as fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. um, and so I saw a rheumatologist, he said RA, at, uh, rheumatoid arthritis at first, um, but he never did a physical examination. So I got a new rheumatologist because um, I'm not rich or anything, but in Canada we have uh, socialized medicine. So, you know, we can, like, it's not this big, huge expense. Um, sure. Uh, so we went to, so I went to a different rheumatologist and he was the one who diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And then fast forward a couple of years, um, I had to get chest x-rays because I was having lung issues and that's when they discovered the sarcoidosis. So it's very hard to know what's caused by the sarcoidosis and what's caused by the fibro, but that's my... What's, what's sarcoidosis? Um, it's where granulomas grow in and on your organs and or lymph nodes. Um, so it was in my lungs and, and lymph nodes. So I have scarring on my lungs, but as in my lung area, it's in remission. It might be in remission in my whole body, but they don't really know because they'd have okay. to check everywhere. And I yeah. have symptoms that, um, are, seem to be consistent with sarcoidosis, like in the skin and stuff. So it's okay. hard to say. Um, I don't know. I, so I, it's, it's been a, a lifetime for you of trying to find happiness and meaning and have a life amidst those symptoms? Um, oh, man. That is, it seems like a simple question. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay, Reader's Digest version. Um, so I've always had uh, pain issues. Didn't really know that they were, that they were unusual until much later. Um, I worked full-time until 24, 25-ish, um, and then I had to same, I had to go on disability, same kind of story where it's just, it just prevents you from working um, because you have to see doctors and because you have to take time off for different symptoms and stuff like that. But uh, to throw a little bit of a wrench into it, um, I was a uh, cocaine and crack addicted person when, um, when I was a teenager. So that also sort of skewed my like um, my learning, my learning journey was was delayed for quite a while. Um, I'm sure that it messed with my development at some points and stuff like that. But when I was 18, I went to rehab, and that's where I started to be really true, really and truly introduced to psychological tools and the pursuit of happiness. Gotcha. <laughs> I tried really hard to make that brief, but <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do. I, it's, that's why I write. I, it gives you all the space you need. And people can sit around as long as they can handle it, you know. <laughs> I love writing, but I like I tried to write a book. I love writing. Like I love to, you know, um, just like I just love language and stuff. But I always like find that I struggle because it's static. And I find that I'm learning and evolving so quickly that by the time I get to the end of a book, the beginning is no longer like relevant or like not necessarily not yeah. true, but yeah, how yeah. I see it, right? Yeah, um, all, all my books feel the same, you know, when they're over. I write to the edge of where I am and what I've discovered and kind of what I'm getting into. And then the next one comes out and sort of moves on from that. So each one ends with this, like, let's see what's next. And then it feels old, almost like I can't connect with what I just wrote. Yeah. Because it's just move, forward movement. Yeah. That's so wild. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, like, I wrote this book and then it was in editing and then it didn't even get finished editing by the time... Like, I was like, no, I can't, I can't release that. <laughs> I guess, well, I write memoir, which is, you know, you're writing about your past. So uh, that's, you know, obviously there's a well of stories you can share from your, your history mm -hmm. that 
the only way you would update those is if you're reframing them, which is a very healing thing to do because you might tell yourself all kinds of things about who you are and what your stories are. And then as you write, you find out those things aren't true. And so there's a lot of healing in writing and reframing your, your, the events in your life oh. by, by new viewpoints. So much truth in what you just said. I mean, reframing, I, you know, one of the things I've been wondering lately for myself, and I always ask my guests this, so I'm sure that I will ask you, um, and that's actually why I'm so curious, is one of the things I've been wondering for myself, and, and take this as a question when I'm finished rambling here, um, sure. <laughs> is I always wonder, like, what do I think has been, if I could pick one tool that I have used that has really, really uh, forwarded me, that's the weirdest way to phrase that, moved me forward in my journey toward happiness. And by the way, when I say happiness, I mean like contentedness more than joy. Um, what tool would that be? And I, I, I feel like it changes every five minutes. I'm like, no, 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 it's this one. Um, so do you have one? <laughs> A tool for happiness or contentedness? Like which, which tool? So I'll give you an example. Like, so radical acceptance would be one. Um, uh, mindfulness seems a little general and kind of, <laughs> um, but like maybe meditation, um, curiosity, mm-hmm. uh, reframing, like like our ability to manipulate our memories and paradigms, like you were referencing. Yeah. So those yeah. are what I would consider tools. Do you have Do you have a fave? Wow. Well, um, your your earlier question about um, having gone through different belief systems, I, I can start there and lead into that. Yes. But I, I mean, I idealized my childhood. I had a very good childhood up until about 14 or 15. Um, when I was 14, I became a born-again Christian and had all the answers, had all yep. the existential questions answered. I know where we came from and why we're here and where we're going, what we should be doing. And... Uh, very hopeful that God was involved in my life and my life would just go well because if you're a good guy and you love God, he makes all things work out for you, you know. And then the chronic fatigue syndrome, the mono, the fibromyalgia, um, dating in high school and having girls cheat on me and be like, why me? What have I done to you? You know, why would you hurt a nice guy? You know what I mean? (laughs) And, uh, And eventually losing faith, you know, preaching to kids in high school and them challenging me and me going out and reading skeptical arguments and eventually after four years was disillusioned and wrote an essay to my church and the Christian friends around me <laughs> saying, well, I can't be a fundamentalist Christian anymore because this doesn't add up, but then felt like, well, what if there's no God who loves me and there's no plan for my life and I never get better? And so I left high school with this feeling of powerlessness because I was weak from the disability and couldn't make life happen. And then began to have what I would just generally describe as supernatural or mystical encounters. Mm-hmm. As an agnostic, reading, you know, Michael Shermer and Skeptic Magazine and on my way to secular humanism, you know. <laughs> and had these, these seemingly very supernatural mystical encounters that renewed my faith in a, in a different way. And um, during that time actually believed in my prayer time i heard god say i'm healing you for what i'm calling you to do and my symptoms disappeared for two years wow but then they all came back again yeah but in the midst of that (laughs) yeah and uh, the sign seeking um you know that we talked about Mm -hmm. uh, earlier 
there was a lot of that, a lot of seemingly very supernatural communication and sign seeking that led me to believe that I was to propose to this woman and marry her. And she said no. And upon that moment of, of now knowing that these things that I thought I was hearing and these things that I saw as signs led to that, I dissociated on the spot. Mm -hmm. And um, to this day, I'm trying to bounce back from that. And that was 15 years ago. So it took me a long, long, long time to come back to life or feeling good because that, that dissociation was scary. I remember not wanting to hang up the phone when she was saying, no, I don't want to marry, you know? And I thought yeah. if I hang up, it means the past two years of all these supernatural signs and uh, everything leading up to this, believing that life was about to move forward, uh, it means I'm all wrong. And so when we hung up and I took the phone away from my, my ear, I didn't notice my hand as attached to my body. Yeah. And I looked around the room and I felt like I was in a, a dream. I hung up and I couldn't locate myself in my body. And from there, I couldn't get back into life. So I just felt numb, dissociated, and then spiraling downward from the trauma into suicidal despair. So for years, every day, it was, today's the day I'm going to kill myself because the impulse was just too difficult to stop. Yeah. So it's different, it's different than wanting to die. Mm -hmm. It's an impulse to... to you wake up in the morning and your thought is there's a window, jump out. There's a table, bang your head on it. There, there's a knife, pick it up. Like it's an impulse to stop the pain that you can't yeah. stop, you know. Um, and, um, and then I eventually met someone and married and then that ended quickly. Uh -huh. um, and it, it also involved her being in a uh, in an eating disorder hospital diagnosed with bipolar uh -huh. and borderline personality disorder and lots of trauma and more pain. And after that period of my life, I had a complete physical breakdown. So my fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and symptoms had me for about five or six years, pretty much bedridden and in excruciating pain. Mm. So it's, it's just a long life of um, Challenges. trying to, yeah, when do I get to get into life? And in all of that, despair um you know there's a lot of praying a lot of seeking god a lot of asking for comfort a lot of wanting the same sort of mystical or supernatural experiences i used to have years ago but now mm -hmm. it's a flat line and in christian theology they call that the dark night of the soul where god seems to come into your life and do these very supernatural things and then disappears, disappears. feels like and keeps a load of suffering on you to sort of like I almost break, like break you, you and build your character and yeah yeah uh and you know that that's all theory there's no real one source to explain what a dark night of the soul is but um not knowing what to believe so plenty of that time I was an atheist just I'm done with all of it and that was killing me because I, life you know I I don't know if you're familiar with um the Enneagram personality tests. vaguely but only because of BC like I feel like yeah, my circles have no idea about Enneagram, but I do because of... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, not, uh, it's not valid psychology. It's more, um, it's more archetypes for people's temperaments and personality types. Hmm, and I, just like the Myers-Briggs. Yeah, it's like that. Um, 
and the Enneagram isn't, isn't as important to me as reading how accurate I was described in my number and then taking it to my friends who are different than me and seeing how accurate they were in their numbers. So I've been kind of obsessed with it this year because it's opened up so much. But the number four on the Enneagram is the uh, individualist, idealist, and uh, everything is very, like, I think one of the articles said, um, we like the ideas of things better than things themselves. <laughs> we live in our imagination. We're, you know, unique and eclectic and expressive, and we're prone to these high highs. And then when life turns upside down, you end up in this sort of nihilistic despair. There's no middle ground or baseline. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. So my whole life, I've been told by friends and family, you're too deep, you're too intense, you're too heavy, you're too weird. Why can't you just be normal? And now I know because all that is described in that number in uh, highly sensitive to everything around you and on and on it goes. Um, and so for that personality type that views the world as deep and mystical and full of magic to be an atheist just kills your soul to be an <laughs> yeah. and just say there's no there's no supernatural there's no transcendent you're just stuck in nature and we're just um, existing here <laughs> right but to me i couldn't gain hope because i had already had hope all those times that i was a christian and people say god's going to heal you and he has a plan for your life and he's got a, a wife for you to partner up with and you're going to have a calling and you know all this is coming, keep, you know, keep your head up, God's going to make a way for you. And for that to never happen, well, then when people come along and give you hope, the feeling is like, well, I've been there before, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. So you stay in a cynical, dead, depressed, you know, it's almost like having like the, uh, the ex that you can't get over. And it's like, oh, but she smelled so good. And they're like, oh, pay attention to like how terrible she treated you. You know, I get sucked into the idealism of things instead of the, the, the common sense of things. So when people would come along and say, hey, there is a God and there is hope and you're loved and life has meaning, you know, you need to get back into the game again. I would wall all of that out because it was just putting me on the top of the cliff to push me off again. So for years, it's not only atheism, it's a miserably depressed, nihilistic cynic. And of course, that's going to make you sicker and deteriorate your body, you know. Yeah, and it's and it's funny because you've mentioned I always pronounce it nihilism. I don't know. I I just I've just read it. I have no idea. So you're probably right. It's pronounced but, both ways. Um. Oh. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're fine. Um. I was, I was like sitting there going, "Oh shit, am I saying this wrong the whole time?" But no. I I have I find that I catch myself in this weird nihilistic, but also like still optimistic type thing. Like I'll be like, like you know, like like I feel pretty good. I'm like I'm gonna go for a drive, and then my mom's like okay, we'll drive safe. And I'm like, I'll try. But worst case scenario, it's not my fucking problem. Um, you know, like, if I die, that's your problem. Um, <laughs> wow. <That's funny. laughs> and she does not love those jokes. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like I find that like I can somehow do both. But anyway, sorry, I just, that's what came into my head there quickly. But um, so you're talking about hope. Would you say that now you feel that you have hope? I do. Um, okay, and, so you got to tell me how you did that. <laughs> well, it's this. This will also piggyback on the the favorite tool. Oh, right. Yes. So I keep forgetting the questions that I've asked because I get so excited about what you're saying now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I backed up and kind of gave a lot of background there, but um, one of those days that I was in a particularly 
despaired state, mm-hmm. trapped in my bed, writhing in pain. If you have fibromyalgia, you know, sometimes it feels like your skin is sunburned and you're, you're writhing on the bed and it's scraping on the sheets. Yeah. And, uh, and there's almost, nothing you can do. Yeah. Just out of my mind with pain to the point that I couldn't even hold my thoughts together. And I just laid there um, like I'd completely given up. And in that state, in my imagination, a woman appears laying next to me. And she's very maternal and motherly. And she kisses me on the forehead, kisses me on the cheek, puts her arms around me and just holds me. Doesn't say anything. And I feel this deep nurture. And I have no ability to be skeptical or an atheist at this point and just go, oh, this is bullshit in my imagination. You know, I, I'm so... One of the... Well... With fibromyalgia, you also get the brain fog or the fibro fog mm-hmm. where you can't concentrate. Um, and that's where all of your sort of cognitive skeptical stuff comes from. Once that's gone, you're just left with the you're dream so, world and the yeah, imaginary so world running, running. Vulnerable and like yeah. raw, like you're exactly who you are. Yeah. All your masks are gone. Everything that you try yes. to be is gone and it's just you there. Yes. You can't guard it. You're, you're, you're now Unguarded. That's a perfect way to phrase out. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I just went with it and I felt comfort and I felt nurture and I thought, okay, this works. I'm not going to argue with it. (laughs) I finally feel some sort of comfort or reprieve with this imaginary woman holding me and kissing me and just like half asleep or half out of my mind, I just said, who are you? And she said, I'm you. And she kissed me on the forehead and disappeared. And then I started to just look into that. And a lot of other people have had this experience too. And is that like the divine feminine, would you say? That is exactly what I That's amazing. I mean, nobody knows for sure, but divine feminine was very big on the list. Uh, others would say your higher self. Others would say God comes in the form of many, many different <laughs> Well, people, there's a cosmos of people inside of you, you know. <laughs> well, I have a friend who talks about connecting to. He's a he's a super cool. If you if you continue listening, you'll you'll hear him, Andre Psyche, super cool guy. Um, anyways, <clears throat> he was talking about you know um, connecting to the divine feminine about a, a few different things. So um, when he was talking about you know relationships, he's single and and you know stuff like that. And uh, so he was talking about connecting to the divine feminine. And um, he didn't have it personified in that way when he described it, but that's almost exactly what I imagined is what you described. So as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that just, that sounds like the, the internal feminine that exists uh-huh. in all of us, as opposed to, you know, the eternal, internal masculine, which is kind of our internal um, protector, you know, those masks that we were talking about that we all have. Sure. To me, would be that would be the the masculine, the doer, the protector, and and all of that. Our our front facing selves, generally in this scary Trying ass to hold world. Hold it together. Yeah. So sorry. Trying <laughs> I, to be stoic. Yes, stoic. Uh, I have a love hate relationship with stoicism. <laughs> I do too. It's too practical. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can go here while we're while we're at this. Um, I mean, I can go further in this and say that that opened up a door to, um, I discovered uh, um, Jung had something called active imagination. Um, Boy, did I write it down here? Um, 
there's active imagination where you your subconscious can guide you through the images that it brings up into your mind. So you're just sitting and you're letting uh, images arise and then you're asking them why they're there. It's it's not so much that you're in dialogue. You just lay there and let come out, come out uh, what comes out. And um, free association was uh, something Freud came up with, which is where you just sit and talk and whatever comes out, comes out. And you almost have an inner dialogue. Mm-hmm. So when I was a, a Christian, I would say, well, I hear God's voice. I'm laying there praying and I hear something in my mind that doesn't feel like it's coming from me. And it's even predictive what it's saying ends up coming true. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, I'm in touch with something supernatural here. That's God speaking to me. But it could also just be Intuition. being very intuitive and in touch with your, <laughs> your... So that's been a very comforting thing for me that I didn't read about or choose or know about. It, it happens spontaneously in a moment of suffering where this person just appeared and this is where it gets kind of difficult. When you are flat with pain, mm-hmm. you don't feel you don't feel dopamine hits the way other people do. For you don't get a payoff for what you do. Man, I went yeah. for a jog and I feel good. I clean my house and I feel great. You just you feel this flat pain with everything you do. If you if you're numb and you're disconnected, then you want to feel something intensely. So you're trying to get into touch with your emotions. Yep. But if you if you feel pain or depression too intensely, you're trying to dissociate from that and find flatness. So I'm reading books on Buddhism about how to sort of detach from that and have this evened out, like we said, stoic, don't get too high, don't get too low, have a bemused smile no matter what happens, you're kind of over it all. And I thought, maybe I need that. And then at the very same time, I went to a bargain bookstore and I found a book called um, Tantric Jesus. Oh, and oh, I, that sounds amazing. I know. I think um, I don't. I used to have it here, but it's packed up. And I think it's uh, the subtitle is "Recovering the Erotic Heart of Early Christianity," and it's written by a minister who is blending uh, Eastern philosophy with Christianity and noting their differences, but also seeing where they intersect in this middle part. And he was in a prayer service uh, or like a meditation service with other Christians where they were visualizing Jesus appearing to them mm-hmm. and then like hugging them or healing them or something like that. And in his case, he got a vision of the goddess uh, Kali. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. She's a K-A-L-I. Hindu goddess, I believe. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a frightening. Uh, <laughs> well, she appears as ugly as she is, but she's just emanating this um, this erotic energy. And mm-hmm. she, I think she gets on top of him and kisses him in the vision, and he feels this, this euphoric sort of supernatural force go through him. And what he would be, what he would say is the connection with the divine. And she says something along the lines of something will be taken and something will be given. And I think, if I remember correctly, it, it, uh, it cured an addiction of his on the spot. Wow. And yeah, I, I'll have to go back and read it again. I can follow up after this if I, if I find my notes. <laughs> um, and afterwards in the group, they went around and, and so, you know, what did Jesus do or say to you in your vision? And they would say he appeared and he had the hair and his hands were pierced, you know, typical images of Jesus. 
But then when they got to him, he said, you know, well, this god, this ancient Hindu goddess came to me and kissed me. And they all laughed. And they're like, yeah, maybe you'll get it next time, you know. <laughs> and then the minister took him aside and he said, I, I think you're the only one in the group that God actually encountered today. Because they all got this sort of like greeting card version of Jesus. <laughs> he was transformed by this encounter. So his whole idea was don't be afraid of God coming to you in the form of other, in the form of goddesses gods, whatever infinite ways he wants to, even the word he doesn't fit. But I understand any, though. Yeah, any infinite way God wants to manifest, don't fight that. So he has this transformative experience. And his thesis about the erotic heart of Christianity is that that this is a, a, uh, a body positive, nature positive, getting into the primal uh, urges and, and depths of your soul. Um, I think uh, Carl Jung talked about shadow work, getting in touch with the most primal parts of you. And yeah. so you, you really want to be in life feeling those things. And so rather than, than fearing your body or fearing sexuality or fearing orgasm or fearing pleasure or dissociating somehow like the Buddhist stoic bemused smile where you don't mm -hmm. have high highs or low lows this guy would say no 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 you really want to get into life and feel it taste you want to that embrace tea. it it's like the opposite of yeah. stoicism right and <laughs> when you hit that despair really feel that despair and really grieve it like really be in life and so that was that was healing for me and uh last year i was in this place of of feeling like um Boy, I don't know. I don't know how deep we should go down the road of of sexuality and marriage and relationships and things along those lines. But my whole life, it's been this feeling of being rejected, being cheated on. I'm not good enough. My love's not good enough. When do I finally meet the one, my soulmate? All of this, and uh, feeling desperate and empty. And people would say to me, "Hey, you've got a." You've got to learn how to love yourself, enjoy yourself, be full in yourself, and then take that to another person. Because if you're just this needy person going through life begging for love, that's not going to do it. And in one of those sessions of just being, of listening to what comes out of my subconscious, mm -hmm. uh, a, a voice said to me, you have everything you need behind your closed eyes. Everything you need. That Close is your eyes. powerful. Yeah. And, and then just being instructed, okay, I want you to go lay down. And I'd lay there and someone would appear and touch me and love me. It would be a naked woman saying, touch me, don't be afraid. And all of a sudden you're practicing giving and taking and loving and uh, eroticism and intimacy and all the things I'm missing that I'm trying to find, uh, uh, you know, an embodied human, a real woman, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but not just that, everything that the, all the low self-esteem I had from all that rejection, that wasn't me. That was me taking on other people's projections, mm -hmm. saying things to me, mistreating me, making me feel small. So it's like, take that and put that back where that belongs. That's not yours to carry. If you're really in touch with yourself, you like yourself. You're just more disappointed. They don't like you and treat you well. So <laughs> yes. get off, you know? <sighs> and so... Now, when I go lay alone or I go out for a walk or I pray or meditate, if I'm in touch with my subconscious all through the day, 
I'm hearing, I love you. I'm getting affection. I feel full. I don't feel desperate to um, put all my eggs in one basket. When am I going to get married and find a wife? I don't have to do that. I can love whoever I'm with at the time. I can be with whoever I'm with at the time. I don't have to have someone and make her my wife and then like have her promise to love me forever. That's the idealism again. Oh, if I was just married, I'd finally be loved and have a great sex life. No, you don't have to. You can have a great sex life behind your closed eyes. You can be loved behind your closed eyes. And then in that fullness, you take that into all of your relationships. So now if I meet someone, there's no desperate need to have them for myself. You just, you create meaningful memories. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to all the books I wrote, those are all memoirs of 30 years of my life. They tell the story of, I fail at finding God. I fail at getting healthy. I fail at getting married. I fail at starting a career. Uh, There's a lot of sort of, um, I lived passionately and I tried, but I fail and fail and fail. And there's not a lot of hope in those Mm -hmm. books. And so this year, again, in one of those sessions of just laying there and listening to your subconscious, it said you can reframe those stories and change your past. So rather than looking at it as, well, I got married, it didn't work out, I was heartbroken, now I'm alone, just pull out of there all the good, meaningful memories like vignettes. Take them out of the frame of a a bigger story and just enjoy that moment and enjoy that moment and enjoy that moment. Once you take that frame off, that flatness of, I'm a loser. Things aren't working out. Why this? Why yeah, this? Yeah, how does it fit into that narrative of you not being good enough? Right. That breaks, and then all these great memories just start flooding out. They're like balloons coming out of a net. Do you remember uh, you had that dinner? Do you remember you tried that new Chinese food? Do you remember how great making love was on that day when it was raining and, you know, there was a half-eaten pizza on the table? Or, and all of a sudden, you're just paying attention to all the stuff that serves you And then the most disillusioning memories in my life became, hey, look at those as doorways to something new. You you were disillusioned with your fundamentalist Christianity that introduced you into learning how to investigate claims better. Um, You proposed to this woman thinking God was speaking to you. It didn't work out. That broke you of the need of having to have a soulmate and a you know, and on and on it goes. So Mm -hmm. each, each of these things that are the worst thing that ever happened to you Here's how you can turn them around and use them for good. So now going forward, there's the feeling of I just wake up every day and I say, I want to create as many good, memorable things as I can. So just this morning, I went to a coffee shop and I had uh, I had some gourmet coffee and a French panini. And I took some notes out of a book I enjoyed. And I wrote down some notes for our discussion right now. And I went to the store and got some things I needed. And I came home and I had chicken. So when I journal at the end of the day, it's, man, you had coffee, you see, there's no bigger frame. And then when bad things happen, you, you take your hit and you let it go. And then you be open to the next moment where something good is about to arrive. And so you, you can just tear apart all those frames and all of that narrative from your past and everything opens up. That's that's beautiful. And it sounds like um, the, the, tool, the tool that you're talking, and I honestly... I would have encouraged you to dive deeper, but we're so like close to the end um, because like I really, I'm really, really enjoying everything that you're saying. Um, I'm like, oh, why did we say? Like, we can talk some more uh, for sure. But, uh, but the, uh, 
the, the tool that you're talking about, I think is the celebration tool, which is, that's what my therapist calls it. Um, where it's like, we, we go and we look back and we, we pull out the happiness, like you talked about the, the things that are obviously fulfilling and good. And then Mm -hmm. we look at the things that were challenging and, and, and reframe it, um, and, and celebrate what those things gave us, even though they may have caused pain, they gave us things like, so me being a drug addict got me into happiness, which eventually got me into podcasting, you know, or, or whatever. And, uh, and so thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I'm, Wondering if you'll play a game with me before before I get you to tell everyone sure. about your books and uh, close down. <laughs> okay, it's not a very good game because I'm not good at making up games, but it's just <laughs> all I'm going to do is I'm going to read you some British slang from oh, wow. lifehack.org. And, uh, and you just have to guess what it means. So easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Oh, oh actually, this is a Canadian saying as well. So maybe you'll know, you'll know what it is. Maybe. Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle? Yeah. What does Bob's your uncle mean? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It means, there you go. So it's like, like I went to the store and Bob's your uncle got some milk. Um, That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Hey, brass monkeys. Just that phrase alone, huh? I don't think so. I think that this is a bad, this is a bad list. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe. Wait, no. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think it is brass monkeys. It's brass monkeys outside. No. It's brass monkeys outside. That's the um, example it, sentence. It's, it sounds like it's no good outside. Uh, very cold. Very cold. Apparently. That's what that means. Yeah, so I guess I guess it originally wow. comes from the saying, um, "It's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey," which apparently is a saying. That's hilarious. Um, I have family your... in England; oh. they're going to be very disappointed. Well, or they'll be disappointed in LifeHack.org, maybe, because maybe these are shitty sayings. You know, maybe these aren't actually British. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not British. Um, butcher's hook. <laughs> And they're like, we don't, we don't say this. <laughs> Butcher's hook. Uh, yeah, I, you're. I don't know that it's your. Something's your fault. You're on the hook for something. Um, no, apparently it means to have a look. So it's from the Cockney rhyming slang. Wow. I'm uh, over three. That's okay. We're only gonna do two more. Oh, this one you should know, um, because. It's from the immigrant song, I think. Chunder. Say it again. Chunder. Chunder. Don't know. Really? It means to vomit. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that. Come from the land down under. Something, something chunder, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I'm a great great singer, obviously. (laughs) That's a good song. Um, Okay. One more. Um... Okay, I but I, I'm trying to pick ones that I don't know, because I feel like if I know them, you will, which might not be accurate. But <laughs> um, that's funny. Uh, knackered. Knackered. Yeah, I'm gonna deal for five. Okay, I'll give you the example sentences. I'm absolutely knackered. Oh boy, I blown away. 
tired. It means tired. Oh, that was going to be my pick too. <laughs> Almost. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't guess any of them except for Bob's your uncle. Cause like I said, we say that here as well. You know that one. Um, yeah. And, and it was always, my favorite one on that list. My, uh, my, I have an uncle or I had an, I mean, I guess, he, I don't know. He's dead, but he was my uncle. Maybe still is my uncle. I don't really know how that works, but, um, his name was, and is Bob. Um, and, and then wow. my mom had an uncle Bob as well. So like, it was always like the family joke, Bob. like Bob's your uncle. He sure is. Um, but, uh, before we close out, so you mentioned a few times your books and I'm just wondering if you can let people know where they could find your books or where they could, uh, follow your work and, and maybe reach you. Yeah, they can be found on Amazon. Um, the first one is all the clever words on pages, which is about my friendship with Aaron Weiss from an indie rock band called Me Without You. And there's a follow-up called All the Clever Words on Pages Part Two. Me Without okay. You has songs that with the same titles uh, with a part two next to it on some of their albums. So it's kind of a play on that. Okay, okay. Um, they also serve somewhat as band biographies of, of Me Without You and a portrait of who Aaron Weiss is. Uh, but more our, our spiritual journeys. Okay. Um, God Told Me to Marry You is a book that looks at and critiques the idea that... I'm seeking. Oh, we didn't get into that. We have to record five more of these now. Yeah, I feel like we have so much we could talk about. <laughs> yeah, God Told Me to Marry You is a critique of the Christian dating subculture, especially in the 90s when I was in youth group. It was called the Purity Movement or mm-hmm. uh, Courtship where even dating itself was frowned upon. You should just serve God and God will supernaturally reveal who he wants you to marry via certain signs. You know, you'll just know and what it looked like trying to live that out in my life. So there's a lot in there about hearing God's voice, typical Pentecostal things, people prophesying over you and predicting your future and sign seeking and um things along those lines. And mm-hmm. my disillusionment with that, as well as a critique of um, of purity culture, you know, yeah. and, and the, the teachings that you should not lust and you should not have sex outside of marriage and on and on and on. Oh, the, um, the wide-scale trauma that shit caused. Oh, man. Okay, anyway, so yeah. that's and, a whole and, conversation and, itself too, isn't it? <laughs> sure. And, and how divorced those teachings are from the Bible and the way mm-hmm. marriage is practiced in Bible time. Nobody would want marriage to, to practice the way it was in the Bible. Um no. So it's it's a critique of all those things, and um, and then deconversions is the last one, which is just sort of a a panorama of all of the different belief systems I've been through, what convinced me why I believe them, and then what led to leaving it and moving on to something else. So it just critiques, uh, it's sort of a, a spiritual journey-ish kind of thing. Um, where you end up with your own eclectic spirituality, where you draw from every single thing you've learned in your life. And then it's an ongoing work where, you know, you you don't know what you're going to become. You just keep learning and growing and moving. That's fantastic. So I can link to your Amazon author page and they can find them from there? Sure. They can look up those titles on, on Amazon. I don't know if there's an author page or not. Oh, I assume um, there is, but I don't understand technology, so maybe not. I know. <laughs> I'm on I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, but I hardly ever log in to any of them. Even Facebook these days, I've been taking a pretty good break from. But 
Facebook is the best place. You just look okay. up Paul Matthew Harrison, find an angry looking guy with a mustache and beard. He has a fantastic mustache, everyone. Thank you. Um, <laughs> do you wax it? Or does I, it just no, curl I, perfectly like that naturally? That's, that's all. That's a gift from God right there. That really is, that's, isn't it? That's all nature. <laughs> um, I use thank, beard oil, but not wax. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. I feel like this was such a wonderful conversation, and I'm just so glad. Yeah, this so was glad. great. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, to my listeners, I love you. Bye. Thank you.